fantastic. <laughs> All right. Everyone, welcome to Looking Through the Glass Onion. That music you're hearing here, written, composed by the Professor Jay Hansen over there. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Good. You know, it's uh, we are experiencing the summer in October here in Omaha, so it's it's awesome. We can deal with it. Yeah. It was in shorts. All right. I'm going to ask you some questions here. Okay. Lay them on me. This is how we're going to start. We got a lot to cover today. This is a big episode for us. We had our most listeners ever to our last episode, which was over 500, which for us, I mean, that's pretty insane. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm oh, serious. God. So we're going all in on this one. So 500 if, people? Oh, my God. Over I, for, I mean, that's like nearly a sold out show in today's 2020. I'm suddenly really nervous. <laughs> I know. So if, if 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 you've been listening since the beginning, yeah, we got better. But it's only because we, you know, we'd never have done we, this before. Have we? I, 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 I think listened. so. As I continually listen, I'm like, with with the facial hair and the length of hair, we're getting better, much like the Beatles. Okay, Jay, what makes a one hit wonder? I'm a, I'm asking you. This isn't rhetorical. In in your mind, what makes a one hit wonder? Oh, well, you know, it's it's a group that has one hit. But I have a great line for a song that I will write someday, <clears throat> which yeah. says, I'd rather be a one-hit wonder than a no-hit nobody. <laughs> Damn. I and that's the title of today's episode. <laughs> all right? I want to talk to you about the most famous one-hit wonders of all time. And, oh, okay. and I'm sure you're like, "Why? what does this have to do with today's oh, song? Oh, no, I, I think, I, think I know where you're going. I like it. Okay. <clears throat> okay. The Champs. Are the champs. Like the number one one-hit wonder of all time. Their song Tequila. Everybody knows that song. Everybody can can sing that. That's the only hit they ever had. I didn't right? even the, know it was by the Champs. Wow. There you go. There you go. So, but it's Tequila, and of course you know that. So the Lion Sleeps Tonight. That's the Tokens. That's their only hit. Question Mark and the Mysterians are maybe one of the most famous one-hit wonders. They had a hit with '96 Tears, which sounds like it could have been off a great album, several great... First of all, you don't even know anything about that group because right. the dude went crazy. Anyway, uh, the Archies are a one-hit wonder. Mm -hmm. Albert Hammond, come on, you know that song. You know uh, his big one-hit wonder, right? Albert Hammond. Yeah, it, Aha is a one-hit wonder. Their only hit is Take On Me. Okay. Listed in the top 10 one-hit wonders of okay. all time, okay. anyway. All right. And when I moved to Omaha, the first girlfriend that I had... I, can't, I don't necessarily remember her name, and I'm sorry if she still pays, pays attention, but I doubt it. It's this many years later. <laughs> she, she was infatuated with the cutting crew. <laughs> they only had one hit. Oh, yeah. Brian Adams' little pet project, the cutting crew. All right, so I'm going to put forth that if the Beatles were a one-hit wonder, this would be the only song of theirs we would know. This would be their one hit. This is... They built towards this moment for this to be a hit. And then when it was a hit, luckily they delivered. I think a lot of times what happened with all these groups is they couldn't write anything else. They didn't have the power of George Martin and Brian Epstein behind them. They didn't have a following in Europe that was so insanely huge <laughs> that it when, when this song hit American airwaves, and we'll talk in our deep dive, I'm sure, about how it eventually hit the American airwaves, this song is, is maybe the most important Beatles song, and I didn't think of it that way prior to doing any of this research, but I mean, the momentum that this song starts, I think, is probably the wave that the Beatles are still riding to this day. And of course, we're talking about I Want to Hold Your Hand. Yeah, yeah. Great, great introduction, my friend. Uh, Thank you, yeah. Jay. I figured if people were listening, I should probably put together even an outline of the show. God, look at you. Wow. Yeah. But I mean, I, I was just thinking that it really everything came together for them at this moment. I think, you know, if I was going to give anybody any any advice in the entertainment industry, which there's a lot of research that talks about how entertainment hated the Beatles because they did everything in a different way. But if I was going to tell anybody any advice in the music business is when your moment comes, be ready for it. Yeah. Because that's the difference between the Beatles and maybe the Champs and the Tokens. I mean, everything was new, but the Beatles were ready for this moment, and boy, did they deliver. Yeah. That, wow. Yeah. That is so true because they had, yeah, they had been building toward this. And America... Yeah, and they tried... She Loves You was not a hit in the United States. I know. They and tried I, it. I couldn't believe that. I could not believe that. Yeah. I, to me, that's the more, that's the better. I mean, I don't know. 
I don't know. I guess we'll talk about that. She Loves You has something, that same frenetic energy, but that yeah, yeah, yeah in there. Mmm. Because when, when they're writing that song, they're, of course, trying to appeal to an American audience, and it doesn't quite get there. I know. So so Brian tells the boys, John and Paul, who are staying in Jane Asher. You know, Jane Asher is Paul's girlfriend. And they, they live in this house, and Paul's kind of letting a room from them in the basement, which he describes as grimy, but I doubt that. The Ashers were a very prominent family. So I'm assuming it's a nice place that had a piano and an organ. I'm, I found this in an interview. John and Paul get together, and they're specifically trying to write an American song. Right. Write with and America in mind is what Brian told them. And I, I mean, I've always known that, but I think when you, you genuinely listen for that, you can hear it, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I tell you something, not something. Right. <laughs> I think I think you'll understand. That's how they would say. I think you'll understand when I say that something, some not something, has which is how they would have said it. Right. I wanna and I wanna hold your hand. Right. So American. And I I did a lot of research on this, so we'll get to the fun stuff. But so they write this song. Four days later, they go in to record it. And let's talk about the recording, man. Uh. Some iconic instruments being used on uh, on this recording yeah. in Beatle lore, right? The Hofner, like Hofner one, right? Is this McCartney's first time? It's the one Ooh. that he played. I Do don't we know? know. I don't know. I thought he had. I thought he was on the second one by this point, but I might be he, wrong. He may have been. He may have been. But it's it's the one you see on the Ed Sullivan show with right. the pick guard and everything. Is the one he's playing at this point. Yeah. Um, John on his Miami Rickenbacker, one would have to assume. Yeah. Uh, just ripping it up. Probably, oh, I'm, I'm popping, cool. Um, yeah. This may be my, f this is easily top five Beatle guitar tones of all time for me. This is the John Lennon, doom, 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 his yeah, rhythm let's take part. Some, let's take some time then. So we're talking about the Miami short scale Rickenbacker. Yeah, the 325 Capri, Miami Capri, whatever. My what? dream guitar, by the way. Oh, my man. Dream guitar. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't play it because my fingers are too fat. L but. Luckily, I'm, I have smaller hands. That you, you do. You have those <laughs> basketball player hands. I, I've got regular size mitts. Oh, man, that guitar excites me. So is he playing it? Got to be playing through a Vox, of course. Which yeah, I think they're, Vox they're is he using the Vox AC30s at this point. And, uh, I mean, it's got to be the, the neck pickup. And it yeah. just, it sounds like... It drives. Yeah. It sounds like an organ or like a Rhodes piano almost. It's just so, like, wicked sounding. And, I mean, it, it you know, it, it's uh, it's funny. I just listened to the the um, the isolations. And George yeah. really, George is, George adds very little to this song. It's really right. John. <laughs> He kills it. He does. Right? I mean, we've we, again. We've we've really been. If if you go, if you're just joining our podcast for the this season, we've really been applauding John's guitar playing, which in this song is awesome because you hear it a lot live too. There's a lot of live recordings of this song, mm -hmm. uh, and he plays it differently live, but he still does it really cool. I mean, he the little slide around that he does playing the chords the way he does. He does it in all my loving as well. Yeah. Where yeah. he's not playing them the way that a normal guitar player would play them. He's sliding. Oh man. Yeah. Um, Banjo. Banjo is a big influence on how he plays guitar. It's really cool. Yeah. It's really <laughs> awesome. George is on. Talk to me what George is playing on. So I think George is playing a, a Rickenbacker 425 on this. Um, oh, man. Yeah, which is also <laughs> a super cool guitar. I think this is the only song that he used that guitar on. Um, I think it's a one pickup guitar, but uh, that's off the top of my head. It kind of sounds... I, I, I listened to it this morning specifically because I kind of wanted to remind myself of what it sounded like. It kind of sounds yeah. like a Strat a little bit. It's very single coily. It kind of sounds like he's playing a couple like cool like R&B kind of bluesy yeah. riffs through it. and uh, But it, it does. It has that sound, but... Uh, it's cool, probably also through, well, I'd say definitely through an, a Vox AC30 amplifier again. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, it's cool. And Ringo on his, on, you know, 
drummers <clears throat> fill in the blank. Right. <laughs> the it's Ludwig. not that we're not giving you love. You just know and care way more than we do. It's just yeah, an awesome got, Ringo kit. That, that's yeah. the one that I would want to have in my house on display. Oh, totally. Oh. It's, it looks so cool. Oh, yeah. man. It that's is. I mean, idea. and they they also look cool at this point. The Beatles are the Beatles at this point. They're the mop tops. They're wearing those dope ass suits, right? The like collarless suits that Brian Epstein put. We'll talk. I've, I've got a timeline even, Jay, of Beatlemania that I want to talk about. Nice. Norman Smith engineers this. Mm -hmm. Norman Smith is, uh, in our very first episode, we talked about Love Me Do, where we talk about Nor I'm Norman Smith mm -hmm. at that point. Talk to me a little bit about Norman. Just touch touch about who he is, who he would have been to George Martin at that point. So, he, I mean, he was, he was kind of George Martin's right-hand man at that point as far as engineering. Um, he went on to have his own musical career as Hurricane Smith. Wow. Um, I... Wow. Also a one-hit wonder, <laughs> but I don't know the song that he had. But uh, Kate Whitecotton knows, though. She knows and she loves that song. Yeah. Shout I... out to her. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. I'd he call was... her in, but I've got her computer, which means she's doing nothing right now. <laughs> As she should be. She needs a break. A woman works hard. <laughs> a woman works very hard. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, so, he's still kind of... This is the first Beatles song recorded on four track. Right. So I'm going to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that that is important. So uh, they have two albums and huge songs prior to this in England, not in the U.S., right? So we all think that all those songs prior to I Want to Hold Your Hand were a huge hit in the U.S. They were all – this is the first hit in the U.S. for them. And then retroactively, everything is a number one hit. So. Yeah. You can't think of the Beatles the way we think of them now. You have to think of them in England. They had recorded Please Please Me, the entire album in a day. Uh, the next album they record is, is with the Beatles, which again is half covers and killer original songs on that record. Talking about All My Loving, It Won't Be Long, yeah, yeah, yeah. She Loves You is also on two track. All those songs are record like the same way Buddy Holly and Elvis kind of would have recorded their song, not too much further technologically advanced than what those first recordings would have sound like. Am I right? Right. We're talking about one one microphone in a room. Like all those Sinatra records is essentially a microphone in a room and you capture the sound of the room. So the Beatles, so what do they do? You know, and they've gone two tracks and then you would have had, they would have laid down all the music and then vocals. Is that what they would have done in the two track? Um, well, and actually they had gone to three track um, but oh, then they it. also did a little like bouncing between machines where they would record everything onto and and they were using more than one microphone. It wasn't quite like Sinatra sure. did it, but you know they would yep. they would mic things up individually. Um, but yeah, so this was the first time where they were able to um, actually overdub in a in in the sense that we think of it today. You know, listening yep. back. Uh, they didn't have headphones back then, which is a really interesting thing to think about. Wait, you know? a, wait, well, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. Hang on. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, they had. Hang this... on. No, that stopped me in my tracks. All right, okay. So up until this point, there's no no maracas for them. I don't think That's headphones happened until Revolver. Holy crap! Yeah. So right. they had the speaker. I mean, that, wow. It was wow. called the White Elephant, and they would put it to the side, and then they would put their microphones in what's called a figure of eight pattern, which is like it will pick up on the front and the back of your microphone, but on the sides of the microphone, I, I'm demonstrating this, folks. Yeah, Can you I see, see this? It. it looks like he's looks like he's kneading pizza dough at this point. <laughs> Ooh, that's <sounds> good. <laughs> Pulling the pizza dough. Um, so they would put the, the White Elephant, as they called it, on the side so that it would not be picked up in the microphone as much. And this is the wow. way John and Paul would often sing face-to-face -face, hearing wow. the backing track when they got to that point of doing overdubs. So I, I didn't know that until wow. probably five years ago, and I think it's fascinating. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm blown away. I mean, that is the standard... That's like number one if you're going to have a studio, correct? I mean, you want a microphone and a good pair of headphones right. at this point. Right? Totally. I mean, yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, that blows me away even more. So, God, 
All right. <laughs> so this day, they also record This Boy, yeah. which is important to note. I mean... Great song also. Which is them looking forward to their next album, which would have been A Hard Day's Night. So we don't even have A Hard Day's Night at this point. They just signed the record deal, when or the movie deal, when they're recording this. I'm just... No headphones. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I'm sorry. All right. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, I'm, gonna, I'm going to my phone now because, Jay, I, want, I did a little research yesterday... Um, and I think it's important kind of in the way they wrote the song and the way they recorded the song. I want to rattle off some, the number one hits of 1963. Oh, okay, cool. So if, if you're being told, you know, go in and, and try to sound American, you know, you hear songs like this, right? Right. And then. First of all, that boom, boom, ta, boom, 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 ta. Okay, huge songs like the four, the four seasons with "Walk Like a Man" starts. What are we hearing? Very, very. Everything we hear is drums. Yeah. Right. You're hearing all the. But listen to this song. Listen to the guitar. Yeah. Nice. You hear the drums and the like the sparse. So. That's Smokey Robinson, right? Smokey Robinson, the effect that he has on the Beatles and the influence he has on the Beatles. I think you hear that almost in the recording of this song. And George's guitar playing, which is, it's kind of like you're taking a rock song, that which is frenetic. And, and there's, a, there's recording in the anthology of them recording, and Paul's telling Ringo, listen, we want it. Boom, dun, 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 dun. He's telling him loud and then, so, you know, like there's dynamics in that intro. You kind of hear that in those songs, like in, you know, so Brian Wilson is an influence on the Beatles. Phil Spector is an influence on the Beatles. Smokey Robinson, you hear that like sparse guitar throughout all that Motowny early, you know? Yeah. And that's what George is copping. And if you listen to it that way, that's totally what he's copping. He's waiting and it's a, and, and it, it makes me love his guitar part like 10 times more than I would have before. Totally. Because, I mean, and it's so fun to play, you know? Wow. Because So is there an extra guitar in there somewhere? Because in the intro, I hear a third guitar kind of just playing the dun 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 And then you hear John, the What's going on there? Is that in the four track? They... I think it's an overdub, and and there was yeah. there's one book that referenced that they think that George played for the do 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 that chromatic line that he yep. played bass on that, like that's a bass overdub. <laughs> now I've only seen that wow. in one spot, and and I listen. That's part of why I listened to it today, and it I, it could be, um, yeah. But um, so there's at least three guitars with that overdub, and that's. Uh, but yeah, it's cool. And yeah, George is, you know, he's, it's interesting because he's, he's able to, yeah, like you said, he is, is finding his spots because yeah. John's part is so, I mean, if you didn't have George's part, that song is still amazing. And so Badass. George is it's just right. like, it's still about, right. he's like sprinkles on the kick-ass donut. Yeah. And, and. The recording, when you listen to it with those songs influencing them, which I think, I don't know how you couldn't, right? I mean, Brian that's Wilson a, that's, is... That's good context, yeah. Right, how, how could it not? And then if they're starting at this point maybe to tell George Martin, like, hey, you know, Sm Motown is kind of what we're going for, which there's a, there's a couple of Motown songs on Meet the Beatles, of course. So they've got to be into that, and I, I think they capture it. And that's what makes the Beatles so awesome to me, Jay. I mean, and that's kind of what this is all about, right? What makes them so amazing? It's that they took American music, put it through their filter, which is, you know, I mean, they wouldn't have thought, oh, that's a black guy singing that song. Oh, don't right. I mean, that's know. probably the difference, a major difference between, say, the Beatles and somebody growing up in the American, American South wanting to introduce that sound into their sound. Because everything is kind of, like the Beach Boys sound doesn't sound, I don't, it doesn't sound influenced by what they would have called race music at that time. You know what I mean? It's not. It's, no, it doesn't. You're right. It, but the Beatles for sure does. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? John Lennon sounds as heartfelt as the Al Green version that comes out in 1969 of this song. I mean, they there's passion behind it. They capture all of the energy of Buddy Holly and all of the magic of Motown 
And, you know, there's a lot of shitty American music out at that time, if we're being honest. You mm -hmm. know I mean? I named off the best ones, but... You know, Calendar Girl was a huge hit at that time. All the all the New York stuff coming out of New York was kind of bubblegum and poppy. And the Beatles, man, they they grew up in it. You have to think about the town they grew up in, which is it's a lot like New York. Uh, most of them were dirt poor, John being the only one that really wasn't that poor. I mean, Ringo and George did not grow up in, you know, they're kind of projects, to be honest with you, if you look at it. Mm-hmm. Man, and they just come out swinging. I mean, they grew up in a, a war-torn area like America. I, I don't know, man. I don't know why they hit all everything at the right time, but this is the peak of it, right? This is like the start. Totally, this is the, totally. And man. It's a perfect um, storm of, of overnight success that took four yeah, years. Yeah, years, years, <laughs> which I, I will. I'll eight. talk about that. Let's. Anything else you want to add on the recording end of what makes it sound so damn good or anything you found? Um, I, I think the biggest thing is just, you know, the fact that they this is the first Beatles song on four track, which I think is is it's just mind boggling, which is the same technology that they used on Sgt. Pepper's, which was also done on four track, several <laughs> four tracks, but still, uh, you know, yeah. yeah. So you're talking about a lot of genius level people all working with each other and coming together at the same time. Right. Um, yeah. So for our deep dive, Jay, which I think is, there's, there's a couple of things. If you're just joining our podcast, like a couple of things that I think make this show cool as I've been listening to it, as I told you are the deep dive parts because you find awesome. So it's made me try to find awesome stuff. And then of <laughs> cool. course we'll talk about playing this song live, which, cause we played it a lot. I want to go through a timeline of Beatlemania. This okay. is going to take a second. So interject anytime. I want to okay. want to talk about the Beatles starting to, I want to hold your hands. Okay. And we won't go anywhere beyond those two bookends. Nice. So in 1957, uh, Paul McCartney's buddy invites him to a church fete, which is like a party in Liverpool at the top of this hill. And you kind of have to see where it's located to see how freaking amazing it is that these two guys met at this point. It's the top of Liverpool. You it's went like there. Church. I went last year, man. Ah. And it's like walking on hallowed ground if you're a Beatle fan. That's so cool. So John and Paul meet. John is drinking at this point. I think he's like 16 or 17. Paul's 15. And they, they go off to the side, and Paul grab, picks up a guitar, and he knows how to play 20 Flight Rock. Yeah. Right? And that's how, for me, that's how my life starts musically at that point. And okay. I mean, I think you'd probably say that. I don't know. I mean, that's, for a lot of us, that's an important moment in our lives. I wasn't even born yet, right? But John and Paul meet. 1958, they need a guitar player. Paul says, hey, I've got this kid that I know. They're on, they meet him on a bus. They play raunchy. Right, down, 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 and down, and down, down. Paul John's blown away that this kid knows how to play raunchy because it's George Harrison and he's fourteen. They the first song they ever record together is "That'll Be the Day." They're not even the Beatles yet. They get right. like a little recorder. They go into a studio, and the first thing you can ever hear of the Beatles is them playing "That'll Be the Day." That's hugely influential. Buddy Holly is a huge star at that point, nineteen fifty-eight. That's the pinnacle of Buddy Holly. America's going rock and roll crazy. The Beatles are going rock and roll crazy as well. 1960, they become the Beatles. Stu Sutcliffe joins. Pete Best joins. They go to, excuse my phone there. They go to Hamburg. They get a date in Hamburg. Mm -hmm. They start to learn how to play music a little bit. They start taking drugs for the first time. Uppers. So they're, and they're playing like eight hours eight a day. Eight hour now, shows, yeah. Now, Jay, when did we get good as a band? Yesterday and today. Let's, I mean, let's parallel ourselves a little bit. It was probably in Waterbury, right? We were doing like eight shows a week and we lost Ryan, right? We had like a, a person that, you know, my brother is a hugely important part of the show. We brought Definitely. somebody else in for the first time and we got good, man. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, when you're it, doing six, seven shows a week, you don't have a choice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like I know how to play with you because of that run. Like mm -hmm. we still do moves that we did then. It just becomes your stage banter. It's your thing. It's like the foundation on which your band starts. And right. So that's a that's a good one. The first time they're recorded properly uh, is in August. Am I saying no? I, I take that back. So they they go they go to Hamburg. They kind of become a hit. They they come back to to Liverpool and and do the Cavern and they're starting to rock, mm -hmm. starting to get a following. They're playing in a room because it was a former. It's where they would put ice at one point in the Cavern. 
the walls sweat when it gets hot. That's I mean, right. you're talking yeah. it, it's like the perfect place for them to hone their craft at home because they're already good, right? And then they come home and they get a spot back in Hamburg. Stu doesn't come back, so Paul starts to play bass. He got lumber, lumbered on the bass. And that's a brilliant move. That's like fate intervening again. Right, yeah. Right, because Paul McCartney is one of the most inventive bass players in the history of rock and roll. Without His a doubt. sense of melody on the bass is it rivals anybody, right? Yeah. I'm still going. Again, stop me at any time. No, no, I'm, I'm listening. This is great. There's a guy there named Tony Sheridan. He's an American. And he wants to record a song. He's got, he wants to do My Bonnie. My Bonnie! It's a killer version, by the way. Sounds like the Beatles, early Beatles, mm -hmm. but it's because the Beatles are the backing band. And you listen to it, you hear that Pete is not the drummer that Ringo is, but they're still the effing Beatles. I don't want to hear this Pete Best wasn't a drummer kind of shit. That's not true. Oh, Pete right. could play drums yeah. fine for the Beatles. Yeah. Right? Because they're learning together. They were kids. You know, it's like saying, well, you know, Edge didn't know how to play guitar, so he kicked him out. They all learn together, right? You two all learn together, right? Oh, totally. Please. Yeah, yeah. Quick thing about Tony Sheridan. He influenced Please. their purchase of the J-160s. Super important. But mm. they it was it was an incorrect order because Tony Sheridan played like an ES-175, which is this big electric hollow body. And yeah. that's what the Beatles wanted, allegedly, but they got the acoustics with the electric plug pickup. That's which were once the again most fate used, intervened. Yeah, it's the most used guitar on in Beatle lore. The J John held on. Yeah, I mean J he he did give peace a chance on that same guitar. Yeah. Right. Hard yeah. days, night, all recorded on those guitars. I mean, you're talking about fate intervening, right? Yeah. Anyway, so that's had their, to throw that in. their first. No, no, no. That's good. The, now these Beatles aren't the Beatles that we know. These are smoking on stage, telling the audience to fuck off. Hamburg's a hardcore place, right? Hamburg's yeah. like for it us, was a strip Benson, club. playing a strip Benson club. in the '90s, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're it's playing strip clubs. D-dubs, baby. I mean, people are fighting in front of them. They're throwing <laughs> bottles at them. They got to know how to play all these songs. They learn, like, Till There Was You. They learn all the American songs. They learn, like, show tunes. They're insanely good as a band. Yeah. They meet, they meet Ringo there, right? Ringo's playing with one of the best bands in Liverpool, Roy Stolm and the Hurricanes, you know. Uh, Ringo sits in with a couple of times. They become buddies with him. You know how that happens. Yeah. You know, that's happened to us sometimes. Sometimes people join the band just because they've been around. And yeah. that's, we're getting there. Brian Epstein signs them in 1962. That's okay. probably the most important thing that ever happened to the Beatles. Brian says, listen, Brian's got an eye for it, right? He's got an eye for what people like. He owns a record store in mm -hmm. Liverpool. People are talking about the Beatles. He goes to this sweaty place, the Cavern on Matthew Street there. It's magical, Jay. You got to go. Anybody who's a Beatles fan, you got to go to Liverpool. I'm telling you. Uh, you're walking around, you know, and he pops in and sees all these girls and he sees these handsome dudes because Pete Best is a good looking guy. Yeah. You know? Paul's obviously good looking. John's good looking. George is a badass. You know, he's a kid. These are all kids. He signs them, make them change their clothes. Gets yeah. them an audition with Decca Records. Now for the Beatles... How important would it be for them to get a record deal with Decca? Well, as a Buddy Holly dude, they turned Buddy Holly down. Buddy Holly's first record deal was with Decca, and they turned him down. He goes back home, finds Norman Petty, who records all their hits. Right? That's their idol. They yeah. go to Decca. Shit the bed, man. It doesn't sound good. You can hear it on the anthology. They do Three Cool Cats. Besame Mucho is probably the best song. They do mm -hmm. one of their originals that's not that great. Decca turns them down. Doesn't see a future for them. Right. Classic move. They go Guitar back bands home. are out. Guitar bands are out. Jesus, Decca, get your <laughs> shit together. They sign the Stones. They do kind of get their shit. But they turn down Buddy Holly, the most iconic rocker in the 50s. And then they turn down the Beatles. Good job, Decca. Hey, have well you ever done. heard the... Quick, quick side note. Have you ever heard the conversation yeah. with Buddy Holly and the Decca executive? The phone call? No, is it out there somewhere? Okay. I mean, it's it, they, they it try to, to make it up in the in I'll, the in the musical. No, I'll send it to you. I, it's in oh, my it's do. in my Berkeley class this week. It's the actual phone call, and it's him trying to like figure out because he's already recorded. He's already recorded a song that Decca turned down. I can't remember which one they're talking about. With with the it would crickets. be that'll be the day. Is it, it that'll be, be the that'll day? Be the day. Yeah. yeah. So I'll send it to you. 
Please do, man. Anyway, That's sorry, awesome. I had to. Th- I had. I just thought. But of there's that. parallels there, for, which for them it would have to be demoralizing. But at the same time, that you know, one of them is like, "Ah, well, Buddy, you know, Buddy got turned down by Decca." They decide to make a change in the band um, as they as they get an audition with George Martin in '62, right? June '62, they get their big break with George Martin, uh, an audition with him, mm-hmm. and they do "Love Me Do." with Pete Best and George is like listen I don't mind if you use him in the band but we're going to sub him out when we record I mean then that that's you can see that you can understand why that would be the case sure and they had they had that power then fate intervenes again Jay John and George uh, John and Paul go to Brian and say listen um we want this guy Ringo mm-hmm. doesn't look he's not as good looking as Pete Best but you know what he's a showman and he, he this is, you know, next to Brian, this is another one of those milestones, Jay. When Ringo joins the band, that's when they become the Beatles. Right. As we know them. Ringo, and again, as we say all throughout this, if you're the person that's like, ah, Ringo suck, you know what? Just stop listening at this point because you're <laughs> so wrong. You're totally. so wrong. And all you need to do is look at everything I've said up until this point. This band started in 57. We're now in 1962. Five years in and they're really going nowhere. And joint Ringo joins the band to sit on their first session with Love Me Do. As we all know, he sits in the corner, pissed, playing tambourine. Yeah. But then plays on the record. All right, now things are starting to pick up, right? September 62, they go in to re- record Please Please Me. That's a, And Love Me Do is a number one hit in the UK. Please Please Me is a number one hit in the UK. March 63, For Me To You is recorded. It's a number one hit in the UK. Nothing in the US. July 63, She Loves You, a number one hit in the UK. Nothing in the US. That's important to remember, Okay. But in Europe and in England, now I'm off my notes, Jay. Europe and, I'm excited about this part. <laughs> Europe great. and England, because I think people hear about Beatlemania, but you don't know why it was a thing. Sure. And I think, and I don't know why it was a thing either. And so, I mean, it's interesting to follow that timeline. So March of, uh, July of 63, they release She Loves You. It becomes the number one hit in the UK. And they have all, and they do Meet the Beatles. They're recording Meet the Beatles in July. And these are huge hits all in the UK and in Europe. So you, 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 I don't know if you can imagine how big of stars they are there. Like in October, I'm going to tell you how big stars they are. Like October 31st, they're coming home from, let's say it was some somewhere in Europe, Paris or somewhere from touring. 4,000 kids are at the airport. The queen is also at the airport. Nobody's there to see her. Do you know who else is there, Jay? I don't. Ed Sullivan. Oh, that's right. Ed Sullivan was at the effing airport that day, the day the Beatles come home from this tour where there are 4,000 screaming fans. He doesn't know why. Right. He, he gets in touch with the management, Brian Epstein, and they start negotiating. This is where it really starts to take off, right? Things are starting, starting to really happen. Uh, September 63, they get, the Beatles get some time off. George goes to America. This is important because this is the last time a Beatle goes to America and nobody knows who they are. Right. September night. He goes there for like two weeks to spend with his sister Louise in Chicago. I think he buys Nor- a guitar. Normal, normal Illinois. That's Normal Illinois. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> See? This is, we're riffing at this point, baby. But it's, I mean, I've got like chills thinking about how exciting I know, this is. It's so cool. All right. So in October, October 17th, 63, they record I Want to Hold Your Hand. So they record that in October. On Halloween 63, uh, Ed Sullivan sees them, starts negotiating this appearance that's going to happen in America. But the Beatles are adamant that they don't want to go to America unless they have a hit. Right. Because then they would have been one-hit wonders, right? And they had the foresight to look past one hit. Even though they had She Loves You and From Me to You and Love Me Do and Please... They've got us... They've got more hits than any other band ever has at this point. Bands, by the way. Right. I'm not saying Elvis, right? That they've written hits. Totally. And, but they're like, no, we're not going to go there. And so fate intervenes again, Jay. Word kind of gets out that something's happening in, in England and in Europe with this rock and roll thing. So they, there's a TV show called Huntley Brinkley. Are you familiar with that? I'd never really heard of it. Yeah. Right. So David Brink. Yeah. Anyway. So they send over a correspondent to do an interview with the Beatles or about the Beatles. What's going on? So they're talking to the Beatles and the Beatles are, they're them. 
Right? They're like, totally. oh, we don't know what's happening. You know, it's magic. You know, but they're funny and they're cheeky. And this guy's like, so what do you think's gonna happen when you come to America? And they have no idea. You can hear them in these. They're like, oh, I don't know. You know, I mean, America's where our heroes are. And they're saying all this stuff. They show a clip of "She Loves You" that's like 13 seconds long in this. Mm-hmm. And this is aired November 18th. It's a four-minute interview about the Beatles. It also airs subsequently, which is important, November 22nd, the morning of November 22nd, 1963. It airs. So I want you to think about kids at that time. They're starting to hear about it. In fact, there's a girl named Marsha. And I wrote it down in my notes. I'm going to have to find it. Her name was Marsha. I'm just going to riff it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know her yeah. exact name. Are you, did you hear read about this I, I read this story? this morning. Yeah, it's a great story. So she hears She Loves You, like 20 seconds of it in, in this interview, and is blown away. And is like calling her radio station. I want to hear this song. I want to hear this song. I want to hear this song. And they're like, what the fuck is this song? We have no idea. <laughs> You know they're Amer- talking like, about. Who the fuck are we talking about here, right? And they're like, we don't know who the who. So that's why you have these VJ recordings of some of the early Beatles songs because they're trying to figure out. They're like taking it from Capitol Records, like illegally. Like, hey, we because Capitol and Capitol doesn't want to release it. Yeah, they don't want to release them. Yeah. So these other pirate labels do. So that's why you have like VJ recordings of Beatles songs, and and this disc jockey gets a hold of "I Want to Hold Your Hand." And starts playing it on the radio. Before it even comes out, Jay, there are a million pre-sales just in the UK. Yeah. And then in America, it's like this fire that is starting. And I'm so excited as I turn my effing page here. They come to America on February 7th, 1964. They leave. There are 4,000 people at Heathrow. They come to America. There are 4,000 people waiting. The press is waiting to eat them alive. And they charm the pants off them because they're smarter than the American press. They have that British Liverpoolian humor that just, you know, they're the effing Beatles, man. They were ready for that moment, Jay, like we were talking about. If they would have come over and been like, oh, we'll cut our hair tomorrow, you know. But instead they're like, I got one yesterday. What do you call that haircut? Arthur. It's all the shit from the movie. And they, ah, they go to D.C., they play their first live show in America, and it's kind of a disaster. You can watch it oh on YouTube. God, yeah. It's a effing it, train wreck, man. They're like trying to spin Ringo around, and people are throwing jelly beans. In the, and it's important to note that they're also still scared of America because they just killed the president in November. Right, right. Right, like they didn't want to fly to places. They took a train. Anyway, so February 9th, 1960. Now, you and I know the impact of this moment because in our show— We've played these Beatlemania songs every show we do, mm-hmm. and people still get off on it, right? Yeah. If you just start talking about that night, yeah. you know, they remember where they... It's their moment for the baby boomers, their moment. Totally. My sister saw You hear me, baby? It. Your sister did, oh, right? Oh, yeah. And, and, and it's... I mean, she, I can see it in her eyes that she remembers it like it happened yesterday. It is so cool. And I think cool. for them it did, right? It's yeah, awesome. It I mean, Ed so Sullivan... Cool. Ed Sullivan is another fifth Beatle, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, he really set them up for success. I want to talk just a little bit about that show and okay. just some just some stats about that show. Uh, February 9th, 1964, of course, the one of the most famous episodes of television in history. Totally. Do you know how much the Beatles charged them? <laughs> oh, this right? is good. I do not it's know. It's like the right, if you're going to do a TV show, I mean at at our level of entertainment it's like i don't i've never gotten paid to do a tv show shit that's free advertisement i'm just gonna show up right right <laughs> brian epstein charges him 10 grand which is the equivalent today like an eighty thousand dollar appearance fee on this show well in, done in brian. Mod- fantastic kind of a bargain 74 <laughs> million americans watched the show that night just americans 74 million americans yeah that's 40 percent of the united states population Watching <laughs> that, it's I mean, I, what is you're talking about a medium that is invented? I mean, did every household had one television at that time, right? I mean, right. it's not like today where they're you know, you weren't wheeling in three televisions at that, you had the one TV that the family, you're talking about the entire families gathering around to watch this, so. You know, people talk about, oh, I remember my dad saying, ah, these kids. But it's that moment for everybody, man. 50,000 ticket requests were made for that show to see that. To oh, see wow. It. Wow. 700 people saw it at the Ed Sullivan Theater. Imagine having tickets to that show. 
Uh, Davy Jones performed with the cast of Oliver that night when the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan Show. So really? a monkey was on this. Oh yeah. And my, this is my favorite. This is my last bit here. Ed Sullivan's music director said of the Beatles, the only thing that's different is the hair. As far as I can see, I give them a year. <laughs> and that was kind of the reaction that Americans, older Americans had to the Beatles at that time. And I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you and I might have had that same reaction to boy bands. We might have been that age where, I don't know, man. I don't I, I don't think there's ever been an equivalent of the Beatles in America at that time, unless you're talking about Facebook or Twitter or something, or an iPhone, you know what right. I mean? That everybody had to have their hands on and we still talk, we still talk about it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. That's the cultural relevance of I want to hold your hand. <laughs> There isn't yeah. anybody yeah. that is in music. I mean, the percentage of musicians past that point, Jay, that talk about seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, you're probably talking about everybody. You know what I mean? You're talking about the Eagles and and anybody that came out after that is influenced some way by the Beatles. You're talking about starting a thousand bands, two thousand yeah. bands, a million bands. Everybody, I play up music a because of that song totally. and that moment. Yeah. You probably do. Totally. My dad for sure did. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just, uh, man, it's it's something. <laughs> so I want to hold your hand. Woo! Let's talk about playing it live. Oh, it's fun. Yeah. It, it, I will put this forth as far as the yeah. band. And, and having sat through, gosh, I make it sound like it's a, a sentence, but listening to... <laughs> Listening, you know, we we did live recordings, what, 20, yeah. 2017 of every show. Yeah, I listened to those as well. And uh, so I, you know, people people ordered them after the show, and, and so I, I mixed those down. And I will say, in my opinion, that this and She she Loves You are, for us, our, our most authentic replication of the Beatles. We capture yeah. the spirit and the... the the excitement of those two songs probably better than any other songs in their catalog, yeah. which I'm really proud of because I think that those two songs, for a lot of people, those are the songs that sort of made them Beatle freaks, you know? I yeah. mean, yeah. I Want to Hold Your Hand is Ed Sullivan. And like we, like you were saying earlier, I think She Loves You might be a better song Mm-hmm. But it's a, it, it, it's interesting that that song rode the coattails of of I want to hold your hand, you know, and and so yeah. it's so cool. But and I I didn't I didn't know that before. Yeah, you know, I always thought that she loved. Well, of course, she loves. I only think from the British perspective. I've never really thought of it I, as I, an American, I I, which I know seems weird, but. No, I'm, Man, I'm, in, I'm it, in the same. I'm in the same. It's spot. the floodgate, right? Uh, yeah. I listened to an interview, one of John's last interviews. They asked him what his favorite Beatles songs, which I'm sure he'd heard a million times. Right. I am the walrus. In my life, I want to hold your hands. Yeah. He talked about redoing and help. We talked about redoing and help was I know was another one for sure that he wanted to redo. I just and when you listen to it, the melody, the melody is amazing to this song. It's you know it. And you hear that in the new movie yesterday. I don't know how you felt about that movie, but I I I think what's cool about that movie is they kind of find what makes everything cool. Like, and the melody of this song, the, oh yeah, I'll tell you something. That is so freaking cool, man. Just (laughs) what is it about it? Yeah. You know, I think you'll understand when I, it's classical. Dum, 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 dum. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of. I, I want to talk about the surprise that John talks about when they were writing the song. Oh, nice. And what you think it. What do you? What do you? So when John was writing the song in this interview, he talked about when we wrote this, we were one on one, eyeball to eyeball on a piano, which is very important when you're writing it on a piano because the change makes sense. And they talk about they got to a part, and they both looked at each other like. Oh, like they knew that was the hook. It's got to be the B seven, the E minor to B seven part, right? It's got to be. I, I think, I, yeah. I mean, I right. Uh, so you're on. Oh yeah, G. Tell you D. 
E minor, I think you'll land B7. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That had to, and that's a piano. If you're looking at it on the piano, it totally makes sense. On a guitar, you wouldn't, I don't think you'd write a change like that. I know that seems weird, but, but on a piano, you look at it and it's like, oh, oh. And it would have had to have, they, because the beat, they talk about learning the B7 at one point and right. how that was an important chord to them. And I think that's the chord that really makes this the song that makes them not a one hit wonder. It's like me, because you can't go, this is a cheesy pop song, and then hear a change like that. And hear their harm, harmonic choices. Right, right. And and that was the thing that mm. was interesting this morning listening to the isolation of the guitars. Because there are a f- couple of really cool chords that John's playing that aren't, like, they're not normal, even B7s. or Like, they're kind of almost yeah. jazz-influenced. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I've never played that. I need, you know, and so my note today yeah. was like, I need to, I need to sit down and transcribe this because there's so much more going on, which is almost always the case with a Beatles song that there's always. more going on than is, is, you know, apparent on the surface. Um, but yeah, I, m- my thought as I was listening to it this morning was nobody was writing chord progressions, harmony like this at this point, and maybe since, but certainly at that right. at this point, and this that's part of their genius. It was so yeah. cool, you know? So. Because music people, you know, a lot of the airwaves, like the songs we were talking about, Brian Wilson is, is a classically trained musician. You know, he can write music. I mean, he's like genius level musician, right? Phil Spector understands how music is written and understands what, when you do a symphony, the Beatles were learning. Right, yeah. Right, we got to hear them learn that when you write it on a piano, you're gonna come up with a change like, and they 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 took every rule that American rock and roll and American songwriters had taken and they broke them, like mm-hmm. right in their face. Like, hey, psh, take this, you know, and don't, 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 Yeah, yeah. I, you're Starts right, man. I'm going to... It's killer. They yeah. start at the end. Yeah. Uh, just so excited about this song, Jay. I, I also won't ever play it the same. And we've played it probably 1,500 times. Yeah, this, yeah. But it, it is, it's challenging for me to play um, just with those little bends that George does, you yeah. know. And, and it, <laughs> it takes like about three weeks after changing strings for my G string not to go out of tune in this song after it's done. <laughs> You know, just some of the funny stuff that at the we, Hollywood Bowl, George George plays this twelve string live on it, and it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun to listen to that version. Yeah, nice. Yeah, there's and there's a lot of great recordings of this song. Obviously, anthology. I think there's two or three live versions. Uh, there's the recording versions of them coming up with it in the studio. It's on the one album. It's on the Past Masters. It's on uh, Beatles Love. It's a cool version. It's the live. Hollywood Bowl version and the recorded version. Oh, nice. Kind of put together. I read that somewhere. Really cool stuff. Uh, this is the Beatles never There's played the it live. There's the German version. We have the German yeah, version. Yeah. Which come evidently give me they, your hand. That's come give me your hand. Yes. Danke, bitte. And I lived in Germany like when I first discovered the Beatles. So the fact that they had German songs was always cool to me. So I still... I don't know if I'd need a prompter to do the German lyrics, to be honest. I mean, I wouldn't be saying German words. It would just be like, you know, like she loves you as she dick, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just making up words, but it sounds ballparky. <laughs> I hate to rate this song. I, I hate to rate it. I hate to give it our glass onion rating because I don't I, I don't know if how I feel about the song itself equals the importance of the song to the Beatles right. in their catalog. So I'm going to rate it on the song itself. I think in the importance of their catalog, it might be the most important Beatles song. Because if they were a one-hit wonder, I do feel like this would be the only song we would have heard of theirs. If that's it would have been in like really, a top yeah, that's a like a top take. six, yeah. and they wouldn't have come and done the Ed Sullivan show, and they just stayed there and then kind of post hate you know after it was a hit came i just don't think the effect i think all the timing was right everything was right the jfk assassination the the age of american youth at that time and we just see the power of of media yeah you know yeah and and it really it can be good sometimes um and this is one of those instances where it really helped america heal and i think 
that's part of what we capitalize on as a show. Our show capitalizes on that feeling that the Beatles provided then. We try to bring that feeling to people in our show. That That's really the goal. You know? Totally. I mean, I've always yeah. said for theater to be good, it needs to be entertaining. And people were yeah. entertained. And people are entertained by our show, I feel like. So. Yeah. And their, their music is, man. So... Rate it for me, Jay. I, I, I mean, I, th- for me, it's impossible to separate the relevance of the yeah. song from the song. So I, I just have to go 10. 10. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. <sighs> Separating it, making it just the song, it's an 8, 9 for me. Okay. Which, mean, which is an essential Beatles track, obviously. I just, I think She Loves You is, is a better song. Oh, I, I, just, I, I I wouldn't the argue that. The drum, the drum, she's, oh God, it's, and I've always put that in importance in our show. This typically isn't the one that I put in the Beatlemania section, but I think, I think I've been making a mistake, but that's because I think of it in the British way. Like, She Loves You is the song for me that. I, I, it's so funny because I've always thought the same thing. I've always been kind of like, eh, this song, and there's a great story you know, we'll, we'll do She Loves You eventually, but there's a great oh, yeah. story that, that Emmerich talks about like when when they recorded She Loves You, and I've always felt like She Loves You had an energy that I want to hold your hand never quite captured. Yeah. But I I mean, these two songs are, they're Beatlemania to me, you know? They are, yeah. Maybe with the only other additions being something like All My Loving, which I, even even still, I mean, these two singles... Man, they are. It's it's the pinnacle of Beatlemania, I think. I don't know if the Beatles would even say that, but these songs are, I think, an entryway for a lot of Beatles fans. Yeah. You know, yeah. especially the fans that we entertain, the the baby boomer generation. I mean, for you and I, I mean, this this isn't our favorite Beatles song. You know, I don't think by a, by a long shot it's our right. favorite Beatles song. I definitely like the the older Beatles, the the Abbey Road, Let It Be. But I, I thought if we were gonna go back into the early, that we we, you know. We'd pick an important one. Yeah, it was like a good did. choice. Good choice. For yeah, sure. so if you're still listening, this is our longest episode, but it had to be. You know, I think like a day in the life is probably a two-hour episode. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Totally. I'm Billy McGuigan. That's Jay Hansen. You can find us on BillyMcGuigan.com. Our podcast is up there. Uh, you can find us on Spotify in Apple. Please subscribe to our podcast. Uh, I know that we have people listening and we have people subscribing and we are forever grateful. We're totally. a sponsorless show right now. You know what, Jay? Yesterday and today, the sponsor of today's show, we're at the Omaha Playhouse here in Omaha until... Uh, Halloween, and we're going to take some time off. It'll be our first November, December off in over 12 years. I don't even know what I'm going to do. I don't either. Uh, so that's, we're, we're, let's do our podcast a couple times in there. What do you say? Oh, totally. We can do that. All right. You get to pick, pick the next song. I don't know what that'll be. Okay. All right. All right. From Must to You. We've been looking through the glass <laughs> onion. Huh? You see what I did there? <laughs> I want to hold it. <laughs>